0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelaldi from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Rohan Mukherjee about his book, Ascending Order, Rising Powers and the Politics of Status in International Institutions, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Rohan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm an assistant professor uh, in the Department of International Relations at the, at the LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science uh, in London. Uh, I just moved here after spending six years in Singapore. I was also teaching there at, uh, at Yale and U.S. College before this. Um, and I, I work broadly on rising powers uh, and their grand strategies, international order and security. That's yeah. Sorry.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you uh, speaking to me today. Um, So we're talking about your book, Ascending Order. How did you come to write this book?
1: So the book, um, as with many sort of uh, first books, it was my PhD dissertation. uh, And sort of the idea, I guess, originated even before I was doing my PhD. I was working as a research assistant uh, in New Delhi. I grew up in India, and I was working as a research assistant for Uh, A scholar and diplomat uh, called David Malone who was writing a book on Indian foreign policy and in the process of that I started to sort of discover looking at Indian history sort of in the 20th century how status conscious India was as a rising power and that got me thinking is this this an Indian thing you know is it unique to India or is it something about post-coloniality you know it's an argument that other people have made as well. Uh, Manjri Miller has a book on this Um, and so I sort of you know, when I started the PhD, I was interested in this question and I started reading about other countries, especially China, which, you know, everyone was sort of studying at the time uh, and still is. And I read about Chinese foreign policy and many scholars of China were saying similar things that, you know, China cares about status, its place in the international order, and so on. So I started to sort of think about whether there is something about rising powers that makes them uh, status conscious, that sets them apart in some way, that makes them, you know, think in these ways, and how this might impact. International politics, and so I was also fortunate at the time that uh, you know people, others like Stephen Ward and Michelle Murray, were working on this topic, and I sort of learned a lot from their work. and And I I, I thought about you know international order as the space in which these countries contest uh, you know their their position in the sort of international hierarchy that that exists you know between the great powers and everyone else. Um, in global affairs. And so that's sort of, you know, the, the intellectual background of the of the book. And I, I worked on it for my dissertation. I spent many years after that revising the dissertation into a, a usable book manuscript. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always a long process and COVID got in the way and there was all kinds of challenges. Um, but in the end, you know, it was probably from inception to completion, literally a 10-year process, uh, you know.
0: Wow. Well, I I can certainly tell similar stories about my my own book. Um, But I think the good news is that the result uh, is a very compelling and very strong book, Um, certainly worth the time that you spent on it. Uh, So as I understand it, the central question in the book is, why might a rising power challenge or accept the international order? And of course, you're not the first person to look, uh, you know, at these questions. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what are the gaps in the existing approaches to power shifts?
1: Yeah, the the book is, as you mentioned, centered on sort of these two puzzles, right? Like, why why should a rising or why does a rising power frequently challenge an international order that has enabled its rise? I mean, that's but logically, if some if a system or a set of institutions is working for you, you typically wouldn't. Um, you know, think that it's it's rational or reasonable to challenge it, and on the other hand, there are occasions when rising powers will accept uh, onerous institutional arrangements or an international order that that seeks to restrain them. And again, they do this at great cost to themselves, and it's sort of hard to make sense of that without thinking about things other than a country's material interest. Right? That's kind of the. Uh, in a sense, a big focus of the book, but in terms of gaps, so in, in thinking about this, and obviously people had thought about this question and they had they had sort of asked these questions, but in in a, in a very uh, siloed way, people of most of the sort of literature on rising powers focuses on conflict, and so they always ask the question about challenge. Very few works, and in a very separate vein, I'll talk about cooperation and and acceptance of an order, right? And so, so I was trying to sort of think of ways to bridge these two uh, sets of literature but also to sort of, you know, thinking about gaps, I guess there were sort of three. One is um, the literature largely focused toward uh, on the sort of what you might call the late stages of a rising power, right? Where where it's already on the verge of becoming a great power, a systemic actor, i.e. an actor that has an influence over the entire system, and therefore starts, international system, and therefore starts to, you know, in a sense pose a threat to its existing great powers. And that's obviously a situation where, you know the the risk of conflict is already high, and so uh, you know in a sense people who study that tend to then overemphasize the pros- the prospect of conflict or the potential for conflict, but it doesn't really get at this question of why are they even dissatisfied to begin with? Why are these countries that are rising up within an order uh, dissatisfied with their position or, or or the nature of the order? Right? The second gap I thought was you know um, again this idea that you know we don't have a, we didn't have a good sense. Uh, and maybe we still don't after my book, but we—I I thought we didn't have a good sense of the conditions under which these countries would cooperate um, or, or, or challenge the international order. We had we had accounts of when they would challenge and when they would cooperate, which are separate, but they weren't necessarily unified into one theoretical framework. Um, and finally, we a lot of the work out there uh, didn't also fully theorize the nature or the content of international order. It's often assumed to be very, you know, vague, just a set of principles or some kinds of norms or or just reduced to sort of the the global you know distribution of power between countries, right? But in fact, the way international order actually works is it's, it's it works through a number of international institutions. As we know in our world today, there's the UN, there's the you know, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, there's the WTO that that in a sense manage different aspects of cooperation between countries. And so I thought, you know, I should take that seriously and look at how rising powers actually approach the rules and institutions of international order by centering institutions in the the conversation itself. And I should say that, you know, uh, the reviewers of the book, the first uh, draft of the manuscript were very helpful in this regard and sort of pushing me in that direction to think even more deeply about why institutions should be the central piece of the puzzle, right? So uh, just a shout out to the great reviewers at uh, Cambridge University Press, because they were really incredible um, and very helpful in sort of improving the manuscript.
0: How how wonderful to hear uh, of, of an instance where reviewers are actually helpful, right to the to the process. Um, so, as you as you hinted at earlier, the concept of status is very central to your analysis in the book. Um, so, how how do you understand this concept?
1: Yeah, so uh, status typically. Uh, again, in in, in the way people have thought about this, it gets referred to as a set of valued attributes, right? Things that states want to acquire, uh, you might call them the accoutrements of great power, you know, the sort of uh, having a a big navy, an aircraft carrier, or some people have worked on uh, things like hosting Olympics or prestige vanity projects that states engage in. Uh, And those are all, you know, attribute based kind of things that that May contribute to your status, and again, you know, in the realm of sort of rising powers and great powers and all of that, you know, when you focus again on on value based or or, or attribute based values, sorry, uh, inter- as the basis of status, you tend to then end up again in that realm where countries are acquiring military capabilities uh, to to gain status, which then brings them into some sort of conflict or or security dilemma with, you know, existing countries. And so you're again loading the dice in some ways in favor of a conflict-oriented or or prediction that countries will be in conflict. And so I try to step away from that and reconceptualize it as something perhaps a little bit thinner, which is to say status as symbolic equality. The idea that you know these countries that are rising know that they are essentially not as powerful as the great powers that's very obvious to them but they would like to be recognized symbolically uh, as equals of those powers because they see themselves as future you know great powers in some sense or managers of the international order and so they want that recognition uh, that affirms their sense of self as it were as, as being important countries um, and so uh, so symbolic, and, and i say symbolic because you know symbolism is not empty it's it is always you know full of meaning and it, it it means a lot of things to different people or different groups different countries and so on and and one of the venues or avenues through which symbolic equality is most accessible is the international order in particular the international institutions that compose that order right and so you know when they when these countries are looking at the, the, these institutions, they are looking at the rules of these these institutions and the procedures and how these institutions are run, who gets to be a member, who gets to be part of the inner circle, how are, how are countries treated in these institutions? And they're making judgments about their own position in, this, in, the, in the international hierarchy and, and sort of judging whether they are treated as equals or not of, of the great powers. So ultimately what that does is it frees us from either loading the dice in favor of security when we think about what contributes to status or also sort of allowing us to, to to do comparisons across historical time periods because again what attributes constitute status vary depending on when you are in history right what you're looking at but when you think about it as symbolic equality that is in a sense not context dependent you can actually then go back in history and see what you know whether countries thought of themselves as equals or not uh, you know 100 years ago which is also what i do in the case of you know the us and and japan in the in, in the book
0: fascinating so in the book you argue for an approach that you call institutional status theory can you walk us through this theory
1: sure so institutional status theory essentially assumes that um, uh, states or countries you know value, not just security and economic well-being which is the sort of standard way we think about uh, uh, what countries value but also uh, status and status as symbolic equality with the great powers so in a sense you know i think it's 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 2022 it's fair to assume fair to say that you know countries value other things than just survival and security and all the all the good things that realist scholars talk about uh, i think i think it's more it's more complex than that and i think the question really is not whether they Uniformly value one thing or the other. I think it is that, you know, under what conditions do they sacrifice some amount of security to attain status or some other goals, and vice versa, right? So countries are always making these trade-offs, and so the theory is, is about that, which is, at what moments will a country sacrifice its material well-being, or or take risks or pay costs? Um, to gain some sort of uh, status or recognition in the international order. And so I, I argue that there are uh, to gain or maintain right, something that they already have. And so I argue that there are essentially uh, two factors that make a difference uh, in this situation. And they are institutional factors. One has to do with who gets to be a member of the inner circle of the core institutions of an international order. And so by core institutions, I mean institutions uh, without which the order would not really make sense uh, you know, or would not even survive, as it were. So so they largely have to do with security. And that's kind of the, the area that I focus on. Of course, order exists in a whole variety of other areas, economics and climate and all of that. But when you go further back in history, most orders in the 19th century, starting in the early 19th century, which is really the period from where people start studying international order uh, were focused on security and managing conflict between great powers and so so i look at the core institutions of an order and i say and i and i argue that what what matters is whether the inner circle of these institutions is open to new members joining. That's one consideration, and the other consideration is whether the rules of these institutions um, are are procedurally fair. In that, they, do they are they unbiased? Are they are they um, not singling out a rising power for for any particular reason? Um, and are they consistently applied across you know the great powers and and the rising power in question? So, uh, uh, one thing to be clear about here is that the rising power typically does not care about uh whether an institution is generally fair right they don't care about other countries per se they are selfish actors they care about their own inclusion in the club and that's really what i focus on and so when you sort of combine these two factors you get sort of a few instances where a more open and a more fair uh set of uh, an order uh, is likely to see more cooperation from rising powers um and and vice versa when an institution is less fair less open they're less likely to cooperate and in the extreme even challenge it. So that's sort of broadly the predictions of the theory.
0: Thank you for that. Now to test the theory, um, you know, it's clear in the book that you thought very carefully about uh, research design. So I wanted you to tell us about which cases you selected and why.
1: Yeah, thank you. That, that was uh, something I worked (laughs) quite a lot on uh, to try and figure out. Um, So, I start with this, you know. I start with the sort of um, standard way of thinking about international order, which is, uh, you know the world before the 19th century was not too institutionalized. And so it's it's difficult to study or order in that sense. So I sort of take 1815 as the starting point, which is sort of the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, and, and the beginning of, you know, what what many scholars have said is sort of the concert of Europe order, right? So the 19th century order, which eventually gets led by Britain as the sort of major dominant state in that, in that international order. Then there's then there's the next order which happens between the two world wars, sort of, you know, uh, uh, the, the first world war is a break then you have the second then you have the interwar period and then you have the second world war which acts as another break and a new order that emerges in 1945 under the United States. So those are three orders that you can sort of think about, and I call them, you know, the first one, the Atlantic system in the 19th century, uh, the Washington system in the in the interwar period because it's led by the United States, the Atlantic because it's led by Britain, um, and then the Cold War system, which is you know the U.S. and Soviet international order. So I take these three orders, and I look at I look for what the core institutions are in those orders, and and I identify sort of, you know, two types of institutions that focus on security. One is your you know your your concert of europe league of nations united nations security council kind of institution which which i call managerial it's hard to study those in a uniform way because they deal with such a variety of issues and so i sort of i move away from those and i look at the other set which i call regulatory institutions so if you think of the managing institutions as, as institutions that are designed to stop war, regulatory institutions are designed to regulate war when it happens, right? And so there are institutions that have to do with what is acceptable conduct in war, what kinds of weapons states are allowed to possess, um, and also efforts to c- control the level of armaments, right? And so that's the f- and that's a much easier domain to study because rules are pretty clear and what counts as a rule following behavior or a rule violation is pretty clear to identify. So I focus on that domain and I identify all these different institutions from 1850 until 1990, which are the three orders that I study that are largely in the domain of the laws of war and arms control. And then so concurrently, I sort of identify who the rising powers are in these different periods. And then you know, there's a whole sort of methodology behind that, which I don't need to get into. But the point is I come up with these different sets. It's all in the appendix of the book for anyone who's really interested in the in the weeds. Um, and essentially the, the states with the longest rises are the ones that I look at because I feel like I can get the most evidence, most data, you know, the classic sort of co verba kind of way. You want to, you want to maximize the, 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 the end, uh, the number of observations you can make, right? And so... I look at the U.S. in the 19th century. I look at Japan in the interwar period, and I look at India during the Cold War. And then a, a last chapter is is based on secondary sources, which is focused on China uh, in the contemporary international order since the end of the Cold War. So that's really the research design. Um, it, it that was a lot, but hopefully made sense. <laughs>
0: It did. Thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned secondary sources that you use for the case of China towards the end of the book. Um, but what sort of research did you do for, for your main cases here, the United States, Japan, and India?
1: Right. So those were based on primary archival sources. Um, I, I, I collected documents from uh, the National Archives um, in College Park in, in Maryland, and uh, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., uh the uh, National Archives of India in New Delhi as well as the Nehru Memorial Library in New Delhi so that's those are the sort of four sites that I I spent a lot of time at um, and you know uh, as a grad student there was a lot of a lot of help from friends people people lending me their car to drive to the archive and people putting me up in their homes and stuff like that it was really uh, an amazing uh, experience really to have the kindness of so many people to help me get to do the research. Um, and, and the, the, the Japan case is particularly interesting because I don't speak Japanese, I don't read Japanese. But um, in the course of researching, and so I was kind of a bit uh, dejected that I'd have to have secondary sources for the Japan case. And then while I was doing the research for it, I found this sort of brief mention that essentially the U.S. government had set up a cryptographic unit. Uh, in, in 1919, I think, and they, their job was to essentially intercept Japanese cables being sent from, from the embassy in Washington back to Tokyo and to other embassies to decipher them, to sort of to crack their code, and then to translate them and give them to the, the, the State Department, to the Secretary of State, right? And they were doing this in real, almost real time, in, with a lag of two or three days during the Washington Conference, which is the real focus of the chapter on Japan. Um, and so I, I dug around, and no one had really looked at these cables before, barring you know one intel- historian of intelligence who mentioned a couple of them in his book, uh, which was largely about the individual who set up that that uh, intel- that cryptographic unit. Um, and so I dug up these these documents um, that were essentially translated cables that, that the U.S. government had collected, and it was just an incredible source of the deliberations of of the Japanese government over this conference, right? And and and. The U.S. negotiators were getting the same information while they were at the conference. This is what made them so confident that Japan would agree to certain proposals because they knew what Japan's uh, reservation points were, right? What their lowest uh, or what they were willing to accept, essentially. Um, and, and it's interesting that after that success, the uh, when Henry Stimson became the secretary of state, he actually shut it down. He said, you know, famously, he said, gentlemen, don't read each other's mail. Um, and so he shut down that unit. Uh, but then after the Second World War, it was revived, and it it eventually evolved into what is today the NSA, right, the National Security Agency. So the original thing was called the Black Chamber. It was just a fascinating story. I mean, I'd love to just write about that someday. But you know, uh, so so the uh, yeah the 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 empirical research was really exciting and 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 super fun to do.
0: That, that That is so fascinating to hear. Um, so let's dive into your cases. Now, your first case, as you mentioned, is the United States and the Atlantic system of the 19th century. What are your findings there?
1: Sure. So the U.S. case is interesting. I think it's an important one to have in the book in particular because, uh, at least for a couple of reasons, one is it tries to sort of uh, puncture the myth that the U.S. was not, a status-driven, status-conscious country before, you know, the turn of the 20th century, right? That the U.S. was somehow isolationist or didn't really think about, you know, its global role and so on. Uh, and, and really, I mean, that's a myth largely among IR scholars and political scientists, right? Historians have for the long time, longest time understood that the U.S. was actually really obsessed with a lot of these things and, and was definitely out there fighting wars, uh, you know, at least on the American continent, if not in other places as well. Um, and so... Uh, so it sort of tries to take on this task to show that the U.S. was an extraordinarily status conscious power um, in in its early years, in the early 19th century. Um, and, and it also, uh, I think, is important because it sort of places the U.S. as one among a set of rising powers that, in a sense, it, it's a generalizable thing, because when we talk about rising powers today and their status consciousness. It's often talked in very sui generis terms that, oh, China's like this or India's like this. And and the book, I hope, shows that actually rising powers are like this. And the U.S. itself was at some point like this, you know, whatever that this is. And so in a sense, it is ultimately a a more generalizable thing that states behave like this when they're particularly on the outside of the international order, as it were, when they're excluded. Uh, And inclusion and exclusion is really the core dynamic here. Um, And so the chapter, uh, broadly speaking, sort of looks, starts in the sort of 1820s and looks at how as the U.S. emerges after the, the War of 1812, which ends in 1815 and starts to become starts to rise, becoming richer and more powerful over time, uh, starts to develop a sense of, 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 of a desire to sort of join the club. Of, of great powers, right? And, and so the U.S. thinks about what the best way to do this is, and largely this is John Quincy Adams, who's at that time Secretary of State and then President, um, and, 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 and he and other leaders sort of think that, you know, the U.S.'s main contribution should come in the area of international law. And at that time, you know, that would be a mark of civilization. This is a time when, you know, civilization was an obsession of, of European countries and 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 also countries that were seeking to join the European club. And so they thought, you know, we should modify international law. And 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 the only domain really where international law was robust was the maritime law. And so they start proposing a bunch of treaties to the European countries individually to essentially exempt private property of neutral countries from capture at sea when there's a war going on. Right. So in a sense belligerent countries who are fighting should not be allowed to capture the property of neutral countries. And the U.S. stood to benefit a great deal from this because it was a trading nation. It wasn't really participating that much in European wars. And so it would benefit from this kind of a treaty. Uh, but it was also a way of sort of bolstering America's status. And and these countries uh, refused. They all refused to sort of uh, sign these treaties because they were worried about what the other powers would say. And so, you know, time passes and the U.S. sort of gives up on this effort, but then the Crimean War takes place and they find that, the, the, that Britain and France uh, come up in the aftermath of the Crimean War with a, uh, with a declaration known as the Declaration of Paris, which does exactly what the Americans were asking for, which is to make it illegal to seize the property of neutral countries uh, on, on the high seas during the war. But it also adds a provision to say that privateering or the use of private vessels in war is is now abolished forever right and that really rankles the Americans because that's the only thing they have that is even close to a claim on power or future great power status right because because of various idiosyncrasies the u.s does not have a standing navy because domestic politics doesn't allow it and so privateers are what they have to, to show a claim that you know they have naval power and once this is shut down for them, uh, they take this as a particularly negative outcome. They are also not invited to the conference of, uh, where this declaration is made, and so they feel excluded. And they essentially challenge something that was actually quite beneficial to them. They would have benefited a great deal from from acceding to the Declaration of Paris, and they choose not to uh, in in a, in a sign of protest, right? So it's their challenge to the international order, as it were. And and by the end of the 19th century, they are the the one of two or three countries left. In fact, they are the only country, if I recall correctly, and I think Venezuela, which is sort of compelled by the U.S. to also not sign. Um, all the other countries in the international system signed this, this, this declaration, and they essentially becomes the first universal instrument of international law, um, but, but uh, the U.S. doesn't. And so it remains this very interesting outlier, and I argue this is largely for status-related reasons. <laughs>
0: So your second case um, focuses on Japan and the Washington system in the interwar period, as you told us. Can, can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. So um, the Japan case is interesting because uh, a lot of people sort of study the 1930s as the moment in which Japan really gets frustrated with its position in the international order and starts to challenge it. Um, but I think the chapter shows, and I hope it shows, that the roots of those feelings actually lay in, in the 1920s. right? And so although people often point to the Great Depression as the moment in which things sort of changed and a lot of countries became hostile and, and, and protectionist and started having economic anxieties, uh, uh, my argument is that actually Japan's exclusion was already set in stone in the 1920s. And it was only a matter of time before they built up the ability to challenge the international order uh, during the Pacific War that took place during the Second World War. And so um, there we find, you know, in a sense, a persistent effort by Japan to be recognized again as an equal of the great powers. Um, it starts in the in the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War in 1919, when they request a simple clause uh, that says all nations are, are equal uh, without regardless of race. Right. So they ask for a racial equality clause. And and famously, Woodrow Wilson is the one who tanks it at President Woodrow Wilson of the United States, tanks this proposal at the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, and he uses some very unfair methods to do so. Um, it, there is a sort of majority vote and he says, oh, no, we must have unanimity. Uh, and, and so he changes the procedure to sort of keep the Japanese out in this regard. And so so there is already sort of a little bit of frustration building among them. But then. Remarkably, the Washington conference sort of erases a lot of that, right? So uh, because at the Washington conference, and this is really strong evidence for the fact that when an international order treats a rising power in an open and fair manner, The rising power will cooperate a great deal. Right. And so at the conference, Japan is included among the big three, along with the United States and Britain. Uh, The Japanese uh, negotiators who are very senior uh, who arrive from Tokyo are repeatedly told by American negotiators that their view really matters, that, you know, uh, that nothing will be decided without their concurrence and so on. And also, America, the United States' own sort of offers to to cut its naval armaments, which was the purpose of the conference, to reduce naval armaments, were much deeper and much greater than Japan's, right? So this sense of Fairness that the, that the U.S. is willing to go so far to sort of achieve disarmament or at least arms control uh, was really palpable among the Japanese delegation. And so, in their cables that they're sending back to Tokyo, they're saying we observe a great deal of fair play, and all the racism that we imagined before we came here doesn't exist, right? Like it's it's actually they're very nice, they're being very nice to us. Like that's really, I mean, that, those are not the words they use, but it's essentially that, right? Um, and so they sign on to some very uh, uh, onerous conditions including you know an unequal ratio in the construction of warships so famously Japan was capped at 60% of the individual capacities of Britain and 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 the United States um, and and you know this was seen as a compromise that was worth making because it was a fair uh, order at the time and Japan saw a seat for itself at the table right at the high table um, subsequently though uh, that concession, uh, was opposed by factions within the Navy who saw it as actually a demotion of Japan's status because it would never be considered equal. But more importantly, the real, the real sort of crisis comes in 1924, three years after this negotiation is over, um, when the U.S. passes a, the Immigration Act, which essentially uh, uh, adds Japan to the list of Asian countries f- that are banned from sending migrants to uh, to America. And Japan, until now, had seen itself as leaving Asia, quote unquote. That was how they described it, and they didn't want to be seen as part of Asia. They wanted to be seen as part of the great powers that included Britain and the U.S. And when they get clubbed with with Asian countries, and they also see that you know countries from Western and Eastern, uh, sorry, from Eastern and Southern Europe are being allowed to immigrate to America, they, they take that as a major, major sort of sign a, a demotion of their status uh, that they will never be considered equal that this order is racist and that you know japan will have to take by force eventually what is rightfully its own right and so that starts the process of empowering uh, empowering those actors within the navy and the creation of new actors who are nationalists um, and militarists and all of this stuff so the militarism that you see in the 30s can be traced back to that moment and it takes a, f- a few years to work out but by the time you get to the next naval conference in 1930 uh the japanese are just they refuse to they refuse to cooperate they pull out um and and they leave the order right because they say that this is an unfair racist order that will never accommodate us so again you go from this sort of cooperation to challenge uh, largely because of exclusion
0: thank you um so moving to your third case uh that one looks at India and the international order of the Cold War. Can you summarize those results for us?
1: Sure. So similar dynamics uh, as the other two cases, which is, you know, when the order is, is open and fair, India cooperates and when the order is sort of closed and unfair. And in between, when it's either partially open or partially unfair, India tries to reform, right? That's also what we see in the other two cases. Um, but basically um this starts in the sort of mid 1950s with the negotiations over the international atomic energy agency so that's the uh, nuclear order is the main pillar that i'm kind of looking at in this order uh, as opposed to naval arms control in the previous one and, and and sort of maritime maritime laws of war before that um and essentially um you know when when the us decides to sort of negotiate the iaea initially uh, the U.S. invites only its allies, right, to do this sort of Australia, Canada, South—not uh, Australia, Canada, and a few other countries, right—that are U.S. allies. Um, and India sees this immediately as a sort of ploy to create a club of haves and have-nots, right? This is the language that they use. Uh, they they say that it is essentially a form of post-colonial oppression or colonial oppression of post-colonial countries and so on, right? Um, and so they, they object very strenuously to this kind of uh, initial framing and remarkably the US actually understands what the problem is and for, for there are some documents where they're like this should not look like a NATO cartel like this is the Americans talking to each other right so they actually understand what the Indian objection is and and so they give in to a lot of the Indian requests which is to have a seat at the table they invite uh, Homi Bhabha the scientist uh, of India's top sort of nuclear scientist to be the president of a, a very prestigious international unprecedented international conference where where scientists talk about developments in the field of civilian nuclear energy. Um, They also accede to India's demand that there be a sort of semi-permanent governing board of the IAEA that is made up based on geographical quotas rather than technological advancement, which really shifts the the conversation and allows global South countries to sort of have a say. But really, it's about India having this sort of, you know, semi-permanent role in the IAEA, which it does to this day, by the way. And so they're very satisfied with the way the IAEA negotiations turn out. So they are very cooperative going into the 1960s into another institution that's part of that order which is the 18 nation committee on disarmament and there you see india really going forward and saying yes we must have non proliferation we must have disarmament nuclear disarmament we support all these things but as the sort of you know and they're instrumental in the in the form in the passing of the partial test ban treaty of 1963 um, but as as time passes they realize that actually what the superpowers have in mind is a nuclear pro- non proliferation treaty that only blocks new powers from becoming nuclear and, and still allows those who already have nuclear weapons to continue building their arsenals, right? And so this is a fundamentally unequal treaty from India's perspective. And so when this happens, uh, they start protesting it, right? And by then, by 68, when the treaty is open for signature, uh, uh, India realizes that there's a, well, before that they knew already, but you know now it was being signed. There was a clause in the treaty that said, if you did not have nuclear weapons on January 1st, 1967, you will never be, officially a nuclear power, right? Or never, never, not never, but uh, for the for 25 years, which was the duration of the treaty, right? Um, and India took this as a big affront because until then India had actually avoided going nuclear precisely because they thought of themselves as a scientifically advanced, but pacifist country, right? They said, we have the ability, but we will not actually use it. That was their constant position. But other countries that had broken into the nuclear club, like France and China, were essentially rewarded here because they were both they both had nuclear weapons on 1st January 1967. Um, And so China, in particular, walking into the nuclear club while India is locked out, has a major impact in the way the Indians think about this. And they realize that they now have to demonstrate their capability and show that they are equals of the great powers right in this domain. And so. Although there is very little sort of documentary evidence because the domain is so secretive, uh, there's enough circumstantial evidence, especially among elite debates and so on around the time, but also some government documents, uh, that India's decision to sort of build a nuclear bomb in 1971 is driven largely by their their sense of, you know, status demotion and the need to demonstrate to, to the international order their, their 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 high status, right? And so it takes them three years to build the bomb, which also suggests that they weren't really working on it before, which is an important indicator. They conduct a test in 1974. And then to me, the biggest evidence that they didn't really mean this to be a, a security-driven thing is that they do nothing between 1974 and the late 1980s when they discover that that Pakistan has its own nuclear weapon. That's when India takes a, a formal decision to weaponize its capability, right? Um, And so, you know, uh, to me, that that isolated nuclear test is an example, again, of challenging the international order and then sort of settling into a posture of being a conscientious objector, just like the United States did with the Declaration of Paris and Japan did with the Washington system, although Japan's challenge was far more consequential.
0: So for for anyone reading a book about, you know, rising powers, they obviously have China at the back of their mind (laughs) the entire time. And so it's wonderful that you have um, a chapter here where you consider the case of China. And that also, as you described in the book, enables you to look at other aspects of the international order as well. Right. Um, So can you tell us how uh, your theory, the institutional status theory, performs when we look at China in the contemporary liberal international order?
1: Yeah, the China chapter is interesting because it wasn't actually in the original book manuscript. And then I did a book workshop um, and there were some wonderful people there. And and they, you know, very kindly said, look, you know, if you want anyone to read this book, <laughs> there, should be, <laughs> there should be a chapter on China because that's what most people care about now. Right. So, um, so it was it was sort of, you know, and I, I agreed with them. I obviously I think that was a very important and 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 very helpful suggestion really that's and so um i sort of you know not being a china expert not having any access to documents not knowing you know i'd obviously read a lot about china in grad school and so on i did a lot of secondary research for this chapter and sort of there's some great people out there rosemary foot and you know evelyn go and other people writing about china and their work is just fantastic and so uh, and they come at it from this interesting perspective as well on order and and status and so on so so i was able to sort of you know build on that and and the argument or at least what I find. So what I do in the China chapter is slightly different, which is in the previous chapters, I look at one international order and one institution over time. But because the sort of post-Cold War order is so complex and has so many different institutions, um, I look at China across issue areas, right? This also enables me to kind of have a more comprehensive coverage, I guess. I think, and that you know, and I, I, agree, I, I think that's sustainable or that's possible because after the end of the Cold War, you know, the U.S.'s imprint is much more prevalent across all institutions. So it's possible to say that there are similarities across issue areas to some extent, at least in terms of U.S. dominance. And so, um, I don't need to isolate an institution and look at it, you know, over time. So. Um, yeah, so, so I find essentially that there are in areas of the international order where institutions, core institutions are largely open to China's leadership and that have uh, procedural rules that, are, that treat China consistently and equally with regard to the United States um, and its allies. Uh, are areas in which China is largely cooperative um, and, and 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 supports and sustains international order. So among these, I count the UN Security Council, uh, the WTO, where China, of course, does break rules, but then it gets dragged to the dispute resolution body, where you know, China has actually largely followed the rulings of the WTO. Uh, China is as much a rule breaker of the WTO as most other countries are in that regard. Um, then there's the NPT. China supports the purposes of non-proliferation, has participated in six-party uh, talks with, with regard to North Korea's nuclear program, uh, well, even signed on to the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which didn't end up uh, getting ratified because the US sort of didn't, in the end, didn't ratify it. Um, and China's cooperated in the G20, where China gets a lot of importance after the global financial crisis, right? But at the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of an, uh, at least one domain, which, I, which is human rights, where, you know, China is not... Uh, sort of does not see that as a procedurally fair domain because it is essentially singled out as a bad actor or as as a major power that does not respect human rights. It also can never be a leader of that domain because because of its political system. Um, And so in that domain, China has actually sought to delegitimize what the Western conception of human rights is. And so you see China's participation in the UN, UN Human Rights Council. It's to push for more universal approaches to say, and I don't mean universal in terms of rights, but to say that all countries should be subject to review, not just those who we call re- like uh, you know uh, uh, offenders in some sense, right? So, And China releases its own reports on human rights in the United States where they talk about Black Lives Matter and police violence and all of that, right? So it's an interesting way of sort of reversing uh, that that discourse as it were. And then in between you have these domains where these are sort of um, uh, where China seeks to reform international institutions because they are either partially you know, open or partially oh, sorry partially unfair or partially closed right and those a broad set of things but I include in there like the IMF, the World Bank uh, but also where you know Ch- China is essentially uh, relatively fair institutions but China has been trying to get leadership of those institutions by an inc- through an increased vote share. Um, And the U.S. has been consistently blocking that. And so there's also this effect where after a certain point, China gets fed up um, and starts its own institution. And so the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is an instance of that, which actually just replicates what the ADP and World Bank do. uh, But it is a place where China can be top dog. Right. Um, That's essentially. And then at the other end, you have the sort of institutions where uh, China sees them as essentially open to its leadership. Or at least they are just by nature open to any country's leadership. But they are essentially based on procedures that are unjust or unfair from China's perspective. And here I include uh, the climate change regime and, and maritime law. And so, you know, the climate change regime is fairly clear. India shares this view with China as well, which is that they both agree on the importance of climate change mitigation but they disagree on the basis of calculating emissions, right? They argue that emissions should be calculated historically and not just, you know, in the present. And so th- there's a sort of justice, climate justice framework, as it were, that they use for this. Um, and then with maritime law, of course, China says it's it's largely hypocritical on the part of the U.S. Uh, to expect that China should adhere to the rulings of the United Nations uh, Tribunal when the U.S. itself is not a signatory to the, com- the convention on the law of the sea, right? So so China sees that as a sort of double standard, that this China is not treated equally. So these are sort of the, this is the sort of broad picture that emerges from the research that I've done for the China chapter. Uh, and the, the the takeaway here is there is no singular sense in which China opposes or accepts international order. One has to disaggregate it and think across institutions and issue areas and status emerges as a an important variable in all of this.
0: So what would you say are the policy implications of the book?
1: That's a great question. Um, I I do talk about this a little bit towards the end, and I think it's tricky. I think that the policy implications, if you are a great power that seeks to preserve the international order, you really should be paying attention to the status claims um, and the status ambitions of rising powers. Um, It's possible that you may design institutions that are essentially, you know, they, they have one purpose perhaps, which is to, you know, curb a certain type of armament, ban nuclear weapons, et cetera. Uh, But it ends up having the opposite effect in that, you know, uh, a non-proliferation treaty produced another nuclear power, which was India, right? It's literally the opposite effect. And so if you don't pay attention to status, you'll end up with these sort of perverse consequences in institutions that are largely just focused on, you know, material things like security and economics and so on. And so, so that's sort of one lesson. And what that really means here is it's partly about the sort of, you know the the nitty gritty procedural aspects of negotiation. So, you know, interestingly, during the uh, the Washington Naval Conference, the Japanese were very pleased that they were allowed to or made to and asked to and invited to sit at the top of the table with the Americans and the British, right? And and conversely, the French are really upset that they were relegated to further down the table, right? And so there's this instance where the French uh, lead negotiator complains after the first day, and they have to shuffle people around and move them up because they're like really upset that at where they're seated, right? So procedural stuff like little stuff like that can have important effects, uh, particularly at a Time when broader status is being contested, right? And this is a point that Bill Thompson makes very well. Um, So there's that smaller stuff. But then there's the bigger stuff, which is the membership of institutions, uh, the fact that, you know, uh, um, think about the three top big IFI, international financial institutions. Uh, The World Bank has has never had a non-American head. The IMF has never had a non-European head. And the Asian Development Bank has never had a non-Japanese head, right? China and India look at this and they and they ask themselves, what place for us in this international order, right? Uh, so those things are symbolic, but they do matter, right? Uh, similarly, with regard to India, you know, uh, the uh, permanent membership of the UN Security Council becomes an issue. And so, so you know, uh, and veto-wielding permanent membership. And so so all of these things suggest to these countries, these rising powers, that there is no place for them. And so if you're a great power, you need to be making place and, and allowing symbolic victories once in a while, simple things like if China wants to set up the AIIB, don't boycott it and make your allies not join it, right? I mean, that just suggests that you are not going to make room for China. So, it's you know, in, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, the U.S. had this narrative that China should become a responsible stakeholder of the international order. Um, and, and you know, but they didn't actually make room for China to become a responsible stakeholder. They they still maintained control of all the levers of, of status um, in the order right and so uh, of course you know uh, it's it's very true that China has benefited a great deal from this order but the point stands that in a sense that's not material benefits are not the only things rising powers care about right and so so they they look at this so so in a sense if you are a great power you you should be thinking about how to accommodate the status concerns of rising powers and sometimes that does require symbolic, uh concessions right um in the current scenario with china i think that the time has passed i think if there was a time for those kinds of concessions it was in the 1990s when china was still a rising power now i'd say it's much closer to being a great power if not already and there's a lot of debate about whether it is a great power but there's still scope you know if you're competing with china as now the biden administration is doing There's still scope for recognizing the status claims of other rising powers like India and Brazil, right, in order to dilute China's influence and and buy them in as as upholders of international order. Because if anything, the the evidence in the book shows that when you do treat rising powers fairly and and with, with access to the leadership of international institutions, they do become invested in those institutions and seek to uphold them. Right. And they will pay costs to uphold the international order. Um, the I think, but the tragedy here, like, you know, the real tragedy of great power politics, not the Mearsheimer kind of tragedy, uh, is that great powers are not able to do that because status is ultimately uh, a positional good, as it were, right? It is that when I give some of it to you, I have less of it for myself. It's a zero-sum thing. Um, and so by nature, the Great Power Club is small and they have very little incentive to open it up to others, which is why UN Security Council reform is, is a, you know, it's a dead letter thing, like it's not going to happen. Um, so we are stuck in this bad equilibrium where, you know, these rising powers want recognition and status, but great powers have no incentive to provide it. Um, and I, I don't know what the, the, it takes a, it would take a great deal of imagination, I think on the part of many countries, I guess one lesson here also is that China should be pushed in, in institutions to do more where it actually does cooperate, right? Where it sees itself as a, a stakeholder, uh, the UN, the WTO and so on, China can be pushed further because it's already inclined to cooperate but perhaps some concessions are then required in other areas, such as the IMF and the World Bank. So again, a sort of issue linkage strategy, but focusing on on, on status.
0: Right? I really appreciated your thoughtful response there. So um, Rohan, we've taken up a lot of your time. So uh, my final question to you is, you know, this book is now out in the world. It came out this year, 2022. Congratulations again. What is it that you're working on now?
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, having just... The book just come out and change jobs. I feel like I'm so exhausted. I just to sleep for like six months, but you've uh, it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm working on this really nice project with Manjuri Miller at BU and, and Adam Brewer, who's at Harvard, um, the PhD student. We're essentially looking at the historical evolution of India's uh, military strategic culture, so how the Indian military thinks about uh, strategy, right? And we've collected these. Uh, and we're trying to sort of look at whether uh, decolonization acts as a radical break in the way the Indian military thinks about strategy, because it's the one institution where you see the most institutional continuity, because, you know, there's lots of officer training, etc. that still went on in the 50s and 60s. And so we're, we're, we've collected all these sort of military writings in, in military journals by officers, both of the colonial army and the postcolonial army. And we're trying to sort of use you know, these fancy machine learning methods, which I don't understand, but, you know, Adam does. And so we're trying to, we're working together, like, you know, I highly value those methodologies. And so I, I, we're working together to sort of see what we can learn through topic models of how these individuals are thinking about these issues. And then I'm starting this for the second thing. I'm starting to think about a next book project because, you know, you're not supposed to rest after the first one. Um, And I'm trying to think about how the, how the desire for status plays into, the technological choices that rising powers make because technology is now such a big thing. And so I was trying to think if I can make a contribution to that literature, uh, thinking about the types of military technologies that they choose to invest in uh, and what the desire for sort of demonstrating scientific prowess says about those choices, right? I think they are more constrained than the great powers who don't have to necessarily do that. Um, And so that's that's just very, very early stage thoughts on a, a, a thing that I probably haven't even you know, said to anyone else. So, uh, so uh, first, you heard it here first, I guess. Uh, if I don't end up working on this, I'm really sorry, but this is what I have right now.
0: Well, that's a that's an exciting scoop, I guess, for the, for the New Books <laughs> yes. Network. Um, but those sound like great projects, Ron. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The book is Rohan Mukherjee's Ascending Order, Rising Powers and the Politics of Status in International Institutions, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.